Good morning. It's really nice to be back in the house of God and worshipping with his uh, united family. This morning's reading is from Job 23, uh, verses 8 to 10. Uh, Job 23. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Good morning, church. How are you doing? It's a pleasure to be with you guys this morning and join you in worship. Thanks to the worship team for leading us and for John and Brad and Roy. I think I know where I'll take my clothes now to get ironed. Uh, me around at Generate. Um, I am from the Sticks in Mount Evelyn. I am the youth worker there and also studying. And I know that you guys are going through the, uh, the book of Ephesians at the moment, and I've been seeing Andrew doing a bit of that online. And I know Andrew loves that book so much, and so I didn't want to cramp his style too much with that. So I hope it's okay. We're going to take a bit of a break from Ephesians today. Um, and as I was praying, I really felt like God led me to the book of Job, um, and it's a really tough book. It's I enjoy it, but in terms of preaching on it, I don't know if I enjoy preaching on it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be a big one this morning, but I encourage you to take notes, and hopefully, um, yeah, you'll really have uh, ears to hear what God has for you through his word. Um, but before I start, let me just pray for myself and for you guys too. Yes, Lord, we thank you for your word, your truth. Lord, we thank you that we're able to join as the body of Christ in fellowship this morning and worship you. Lord, I pray that you can be with me now as I speak your word. Help me to um, speak your word with truth. Help me to give credit to your word and to not um, warp it in ways it's not supposed to be God. Lord, I pray that um, the congregation may have ears to hear what you have, God, and I pray that As we listen now and as I speak, that we're able to give all of our distractions and what's on our minds and lay it at the foot of the cross, God, and just hand those things over to you. And Lord, we just pray all these things in your name. Amen. Now, I've titled this morning's sermon, Divine Interruptions. And I don't know about you guys, but I often view interruptions as a frustrating and annoying thing. Put up your hand if you like to plan. Who likes to be organized? Yes, I'm one of those people. And there's nothing I get more peace about than having my whole calendar planned out, knowing what I'm having each week and knowing what comes. But no matter how much I plan, I can never plan for some of life's interruptions. And the reality of interruptions are inevitable. Some might be big, some might be small. And I want you guys to kind of reflect a bit on maybe what interruptions you've maybe had in the past week or the past month. Maybe you've had a flat tyre. Maybe your kid's woken you up in the middle of the night, interrupting your sleep. Maybe you've come home and your dog's eaten another outdoor plant. Maybe, um, Maybe you've lost a loved one or maybe recently with everything that's going on, you've lost your job. Or 
as you reflect on the past couple of years, maybe you've come home and you see that we're in another lockdown and you're like, oh, we're going to do this again. And we get frustrated because when we plan our lives in detail, we, we know what outcome we want. And when something that we can't control interrupts that, we get frustrated. I get frustrated. In November last year, um, John mentioned cadets, and I'm glad you did. Um, I, was, I was helping out at, at my church. We run a cadets program for young boys. And I was, I was playing Chasey with some 12-year-olds, as you do. And, um, <laughs> and I found about after five minutes of playing Chasey, my, my left leg didn't I couldn't put weight on it. I wasn't in pain, but I couldn't put weight on it. And I'm like, this is, this is a bit weird. And it was a bit like pins and needles, you know, when you've been sitting down too long or something. And so me and the boys, we did our Bible study. I was sitting down, and I'm like, oh, this will, this will go away. Sure enough, I get up an hour later, and I still can't use my left leg. And I'm not in pain at all, but I still can't use it. And one of our leaders, who's a nurse, um, they said, oh, you need to go to emergency. And I'm, I'm a bit of a stubborn person. I'm like, that's the stupidest thing ever. It's like, I'm not in pain. And I see people walking in with, like, blood dripping off their hand, coming in critical care. And then here's me, not in pain, just sitting there because I've got pins and needles. Um, and so I was there till about 3 a.m. in the morning because it wasn't urgent. Um, and the nurse comes out and she's like, your x-rays are fine and there's no reason why you should be experiencing what you're experiencing. But I just didn't care. I just wanted to sleep. And so I was then on crutches for a couple of weeks and I had ultrasounds, I had x-rays, I had stability tests, I had MRIs. And each day it was a change of story. It was my ACL, my meniscus... Um, dislocated kneecap, um, and I was getting so frustrated because December is already a busy enough month. It's it just puts everything out of whack. As well as I was looking forward to holidays, going on walks, getting back into soccer over the summer, and I knew that these things were probably not uh, likely to happen. And so I was frustrated. And the reason why we get frustrated when we get interrupted in life is often because we lose something that is valuable to us, whether that be time, focus, money, sleep, um, efficiency. We love, we love to be efficient in our day and age. And often when we get interrupted, we lose our efficiency. Or maybe we lose something else that we didn't intend to lose. And as we look at the story of Job this morning, as Roy said, Job had some major interruptions in his life. And so to give a bit of a context on the book of Job, it is one of the three wisdom literature books in the Old Testament. And it's pretty dense and pretty philosophical. But the cool thing about the book of Job is that Job is not an Israelite. The book kind of doesn't really relate to the Old Testament big picture story. And so we're able to look at this book um, by itself and say, okay, why is this in the Bible? What is God trying to say through this story as an individual story? And so um, I think we're going to have it up on the screen. We've got Job chapter 1. It says, In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants, 
He was the greatest man among all the people in the East. And so here we have this man. Not only is he rich, but he's also righteous. He's got 10 children, as well as he's got a bucket load of servants, and he's considered to be the greatest among all the people in the East, which is a pretty big title. And then in Job chapter 1, we have this this, um, dialogue between God and Satan, or as it says in the Hebrew, the accuser, and kind of links to the word Satan, but we're not really going to go into that too much. Um, And I think that's going to be up on screen too. Um, Satan kind of questions God, and he's like, Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? Ox and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And Satan's kind of saying, God, this man is only righteous because you have blessed him so immensely. And God says, okay, let's, let's test that theory. You can do anything you want to him. Just don't touch him. And so then we have this, uh, we have this part in the chapter where Job is, is just minding his own business and he has one of his servants, servants comes running to him and he says, Job, Job, 500 of your oxen, 500 of your donkeys, they've all gotten stolen from your enemies and they just killed all your servants as well. And then we get another servant comes running to Job and he says, Job, Job, a fire came from the heavens and burnt 7,000 of your sheep and killed your servants too. And I have escaped to tell you this. And then we have yet the third servant coming saying, Job, Job, 3,000 of your camels have been raided by your enemies and they've killed your servants too. And then the fourth and final servant come feasting together and the winds blew, and the house collapsed on them, and they all died. Now, that's a pretty, that's not just one interruption. That's multiple interruptions. That's possession. That's family, servants. He's, he's lost everything that's pretty much mentioned in the first part of the book that made him the man that, that, to be the greatest man in the East. And we get, we get this interesting response from Job. And it says, at this, Job got up, he tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now we often stop here at this story and we talk about how Job's response to this situation is something that we should take on board and have that reverence of God that no matter what happens, we should be praising him. But that's not the full story because this is only chapter 2 of 42 chapters. (laughs) And so as we continue in the story of Job, again, God allows Satan to test this theory because they have another bit of dialogue. And God says this time, okay, you can do whatever you want to him, but just don't kill him. And so then Job, he gets boils on his skin. And his wife says to him, why are you so faithful to your God? Curse him and die. And so not only has he got boils on his skin, but his wife is no longer in support of him anymore. His wife thinks that he's a lunatic. And we have these three friends that come. And they sympathize and comfort and grieve with him. 
for seven days without talking. And then after those seven days, Job, in all of his emotional state, he curses the day he's born. And we go into this dense 30 chapters of dialogue between Job and his friends discussing what has happened and why has it happened. And Job's friends, they knew that they served a God that was good. And so they had come to this conclusion that, that was uh, built upon this idea of the retribution principle, which we see across the Old Testament a fair bit, which is, goes as the wicked, the wicked will suffer and the righteous will be blessed. And that's something that we see throughout the Torah, it's something that we see throughout the whole Old Testament, and it's a pretty general rule that we see. So Job's friends, believing in this principle, they come to two conclusions. That either Job has sinned and was being punished, or that God was unjust. And because of the comforting fact that the God they served is good, they couldn't comprehend living in a world where people would suffer unjustly. And so Job must have sinned. Job must have sinned. However, we see through the book that Job, he keeps on pleading his innocence. His friend's like, are you sure you haven't sinned? Are you sure there isn't something that you did that caused this upon you and your family? And Job keeps on saying, I'm innocent. And now, Job had no reason to explain why this was happening. He was quite baffled. His friends were baffled. It didn't make sense to him. And... We see multiple interruptions across the Bible. And like Job, in the midst of these events, for these characters, it's hard to understand why. But reading through the Bible and reflecting on some famous Bible stories, I've learned that interruptions in the Bible are a crucial part in God's plan that he has for his people. Abraham and Sarah, they have to wait like 30 years to have the child that God promised to them. And then when they finally have Isaac in old age, God tells Abraham, go up to a mountain and sacrifice your son. Now, Abraham didn't know why God was asking that. And Abraham was probably pretty sad that he had to do that. He had this child and suddenly what his plans were were a lot different to what God's plans were. And so, because he knew that God was trustworthy, he went up to the mountain. And as we know, he didn't actually have to sacrifice. And then we have the story of Moses. He's pastoring his flock. And all of a sudden, we have this burning bush come out out of and walks over to check it out. And we see that God says to him, he's like, I've called you to save your people from the hand of Pharaoh. Now, I'm sure when Moses was planning his life, he didn't dedicate 40 years of his life to be spent in the wilderness. I'm sure that he didn't expect for Pharaoh to be harsher on the the slaves when he first approached them. Moses' life was heavily interrupted, and a lot of the time he didn't know why things were happening. In fact, in the desert multiple times, he tells God, these people, they're not faithful. (laughs) Why? Why are we in the desert? Why do you care? Jacob, he has this dream 
about how his brothers are gonna they're gonna bow down to him, and his brothers don't really like that idea, and so he gets sold off. And I'm sure that Joseph he knew that that dream was gonna come true, but I bet he didn't plan that that was going to consist of being sold into slavery, being in prison for two years, and having his brothers backstab him. There were huge interruptions. But we see that God worked through these interruptions. And at the end of the story, the the brothers actually apologize. And Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And then we've got, we've got heaps more examples. I won't go through them all, but we've got like Paul on the road to Damascus having that radical encounter with Jesus. It turned him from being a persecutor of the church to the biggest like advocate for the early church. And we see through all these interruptions that God works. And whether these interruptions were authored by God or by the enemy, not that we can really tell half the time, But we know that regardless, God comes out on top. We know that regardless, God can work through both. And these people, they didn't know what God had in store. They didn't know why these things were happening at the time. Joseph didn't know why he was in prison. But they trusted God. They knew he was good. And we have the pleasure of having the hindsight. The story of Job. In Job... Although he was blameless and he was a righteous man, he gets to this point at about chapter 30 um, where chapter 34, well, we're going to look at chapter 30 first. He gets to this point where he gets a bit caught up in his own pride and self-righteous nature. And he says, Job 30 verse 20, he says, I cry to you for help and you have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on wind and you make me ride on it. You toss me around in the roar of the storm, for I know that you bring me to death. Then we see in Job 34, as it says on the screen, it says, Job says, I am innocent, but God denies me justice. Although I am right, I am guiltless, his arrow afflicts an incurable wound. We see Job, he accuses God here. Job says, I'm right. What's happening is wrong. He says, God denies me justice. He says this as if he knows God's intentions. He says this as if he knows better than God what justice looks like. As if Job's judgment of what was just was better than what God's judgment of good and evil was. Job had reached a breaking point. He was isolated. He'd lost his possessions his kids, his servants, his wife thought he was a lunatic. His were against him. And he thought God was against him too because he felt neglected and isolated. And after Job's friends kind of give up on debating with Job, God kind of comes into the picture and we have four chapters of God speaking to Job and it's, it's quite full on. And God kind of manifests himself uh, in, a, in a whirlwind similar to what we see at the top of Mount Sinai with Moses. He manifests himself in a whirlwind. And we read in Job 38, it says, The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundations, when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand 
Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone? Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? And we get, the, we get these four chapters and it. It's not God giving answers, but it's God asking questions to Job. He's saying, when was the last time you got up in the morning and you commanded the sun to rise? He's saying, who created the earth? And he goes on, he goes on. And he's like, surely you know, Job, surely you know. And you can imagine how Job felt at this point being in the middle of this whirlwind storm, hearing all these things, how small he would have felt. And God didn't tell him why. And sometimes we can feel a bit like that too, I think, or at least I can. It can feel like everyone's against us, or at least some people are, but we kind of dramatically think that everyone is. And... When life gets tough, we fall into this trap of our own thoughts and we think that God has neglected us just because he hasn't spoke to us. Because Job had to wait a while before God spoke to him. And when, when we don't hear from God, we think he's abandoned us. We think that he's neglected us. We can often get into that thinking. I can get into that thinking. And we forget that he knows exactly what we're experiencing. He is intimate with his creation. He longs for a relationship. When we call out to him, he knows what we're experiencing. He sees our hurt. He sees our suffering. He is not distant. It says in, in Psalm 139, I, I ordained all the days before you were born. I know when you sit, when you stand. He knows us intimately. And sometimes, similar to Job's friends and Job, I, I find myself limiting God to what I can see and the logic that I know. And I forget that there's many things I don't know. Job didn't know the whole interaction between God and Satan. And often... Similar to Job, we can look through this magnifying glass. We can focus on this one point when God, he sees the bigger picture. And we forget that what we're experiencing, it's beyond him. It's be, sorry, it's beyond us, not him. <laughs> and somehow we can sometimes think we don't, we don't, necessarily you can say it out loud but sometimes we think we know better than he does like Job my suffering or why are these people suffering it doesn't make sense and we see we see Job he responds in Job 42 a bit of what Roy read out earlier and he comes before God and he says I know that you can do all things you asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. 
You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen pen in dust and ashes. You see, God said, who obscures my plans without knowledge? We think that we have more knowledge according, compared to the one who has all knowledge. And Job, he acknowledges this. He says, I was out of line, God. I'm sorry. Surely I spoke of things I don't understand. And he comes to this place of acceptance. And he retracts what he said. And he repents. And he's pretty much saying, God, I'm going to stop basing my experience off of my own logic and I'm going to seek you. And I don't necessarily, that is my comfort. How do we go with that when we're struggling in life? Are we able to come to terms with not knowing answers? And we see that lamenting is okay. Lamenting is, is us letting God know our thoughts, our concerns, our anxiety. He wants us to do that. He calls us to be in relationship with him, to talk to him. But as soon as, our, as, soon as we start to grumble and we, we turn away from God, that's when we start to sin. And that's when we start to let the enemy win. See, Job's friends, they responded from a place of personal experience in life because they didn't understand either. And as soon as we have interruptions and setbacks, we need to ask God for help and focus and clarity and not to let our emotions necessarily lead our actions. If Job did not seek after God and cry out to God, but rather cursed him like his wife wanted him to, Satan would have been proven right. As soon as we turn from God, we give in to the enemy and do exactly what he wants us to do. We journey with God, our faith, it's not about knowing all, but it's about knowing the one who does know all. It's about trusting the one who does know all. And we see someone else in the Bible who is also heavily interrupted. We see that across the Gospels. We see Jesus. He came through the Gospels and I counted around 30 healings. It's kind of hard because some of them are the same story. Some of them are multiple people. But I counted around 30 healings and it was only unclear that two of them weren't interruptions. You see, Jesus' primary objective wasn't to heal people. He didn't come to earth to traveling from city to city and he would have people following him. He would have people bringing their sons, bringing their sick kids, touching his cloak, meeting him, seeing him row across the lake so they'd meet him at the beach. We even see in Mark 7, 24, in one of the accounts, it says, Jesus went to a house in Tyre and he did not want anyone to notice him. But that rarely happened <laughs> because news spread pretty quickly. And how do we see Jesus react to these situations? 
Does he get frustrated? Does he go, God, to answer people's calls, this isn't what you've got for me? No, he doesn't do that. He shows comfort, he shows love, he shows compassion and trust. He uses time to eat with the tax collectors that he meets. He uses time to talk to the neglected, the ones that call out to him and the ones that want healing. He takes time with the children when the disciples try to shoo him off for interrupting his ministry. He takes time to love in every interruption that he faces. And he lets his interruptions become a part of his mission. You see, Jesus, he knew his mission from a very young age and he was engrossed by it. We see this when he was 12 years old at the temple. And we see in John 5.30, it says, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just. For I do not seek to please myself, but him who sent me. We see right from the beginning, he's not phased about what he wants, but only about what God wants. He knows his purpose. He knows that his hour is coming. However, he doesn't let interruptions compromise that. He doesn't let those interruptions compromise his focus on that. The disciples couldn't make sense of why Christ had to die. They often tried to tell him not to, to defend him. And it wasn't until he, he rose from the dead that they were able to see that God had it all under control. And similar to Job, Jesus was upright and blameless, but of course we know he was also sinless. He was the perfect example. But we still see him talk to God in question, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He says this just before he dies on the cross. He knows that he's going to have to suffer and go through pain that he didn't deserve. He knows that that's what his purpose was. But he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. But he also knew that God's way was better than what he wanted. And he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He didn't want to suffer, but if it was the only way, he was happy to go through with it. He experienced pain and suffering that he didn't deserve so that we could be free. And so I ask you this morning, how can we worship God in situations we are in no matter how we feel? How can we shift from being frustrated at not knowing the why and embracing these interruptions as Jesus did? Through reading Job and looking at the Gospels, God has really challenged me that I shouldn't be as frustrated as I get when my life gets interrupted. And we see with this story with my leg, it turns out that I had a subcortal fracture in my femur, which is the most random thing ever. Fortunately, I didn't need surgery, but it does mean that I can't play sport for a year, which so be it. But I got to this place where I didn't know what had happened with my leg. Doctors were still trying to work it out. 
had gotten to this place of peace because I realised that it didn't matter if I didn't know why or what was happening, but as long as I knew that God had me, I was fine. And we actually, I actually found that a couple of weeks before I did the injury, I got asked into a leadership position um, without really contemplating it because I'm like, oh, I've got too much on my plate already. And as, as I injured my leg and I had to re-look at my 2022, God encouraged me to pray into that. And so it turns out I did. And um, I took that leadership opportunity. And I saw that through that injury, if he wouldn't have put me in that place. And I also know that through that injury, God taught me to be a lot more humble because I'm not good at asking for help and I had to ask for a lot of help. And so although I didn't really know what was happening or why, God was still teaching me and opening new doors to me in the process compared to what Job experienced. But what I'm getting at is that God works through interruptions. Sometimes he teaches us. Sometimes he shows us things that we're too stubborn to see. He opens doors. He closes doors. He causes us with to interact with people that we wouldn't normally interact with. And sometimes he causes us to be a blessing through our interruptions. And when we look at our friends, our family, our job, our money, possessions, as sad as it is to say, those things are not always going to be constant in life. We can't take comfort in those things. Not above some points. Your friends will let you down. Your family will let you down. But God doesn't let us down. And although he doesn't give us the answers, we can trust in him because he knows all things. And it is far more higher than our knowledge of our situation. And so I encourage you, as we live in this world that is fatigued, it's recovering from this COVID trauma of all these lockdowns, going through a lot of conflict and controversy. We're surrounded by a lot of chaos. And sometimes we can get frustrated, find it hard to worship God in our current situation because life feels unfair, because things aren't going the way we want, because we can't control what other people are doing. But let us not get caught in the question of why me, as Job did. But let us be transformed to ask, how can I serve God from here? Don't cling to the why me, why am I here, why am I experiencing this? Because similar to my leg, I had to come to a point where I was like, okay, am I going to, keep being frustrated or am I going to be proactive in my thinking? Because you can just hang in that, that frustration period your whole life and do nothing. But there's got to be a moment where you switch and be like, okay, God, what do you have for me here? How can I serve you? How can I worship you through this? We can't cling to the why because we have no right to know why sometimes. And so as we reflect on the reading this morning, it says, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward I do not perceive him. 
On the left hand where he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. We see Job, he beautifully sums up that he doesn't know what God's doing. But he knows at that point that God knows the way he takes. And when God has tried me, he shall come out as gold. So let us be confident that even when we don't recognize what God is doing, that he knows the way we take. He knows exactly what we're going through. He has not forsaken us when we cry out to him. And if we forsake him in hard times, we let the enemy win. But let us come through hard times, coming forth as gold, because we have trusted in our God who holds all knowledge and wisdom. Yes, Lord, we thank you for your word, your truth. We thank you for the story of Job. Although it is a hard story, God, and it's one that brings up a lot of emotions and a lot of questions. Lord, we thank you that we can learn from it. We can learn that you are not only a God of love, but you are a God of knowledge and wisdom. God, you have a plan. You've always had a plan. Even throughout all the exile, through it all, God, you have come out on top because your ways are higher than what we can comprehend. And your wisdom is far better than our logic and reasoning and our knowledge, God. And pray, Lord, that as we, as we leave here this morning, if, there's, if we have things on our heart that we're struggling with, God, that we, maybe we, we haven't been talking to you lately because we're angry or because we're confused, because we don't understand. Lord, I pray that why we may remember and we may know that you are God and you are with us and you care for us. Lord, I pray as we go from here that we can look to you. We, we, we won't cling to the why me, God. Woe is me. We won't cling to that. But Lord, we'll look to you. And we'll be like, I have no idea. Lord, help us to have that mindset. Help us to keep focus on you so that we don't let the enemy win, God. Because we know that you are far superior. Lord, we know that you come out on top. We know that no matter what the interruption is, evil or good, that you always come out on top. Lord, go before us this morning. You know what you have for each of us in our lives. You have ordained our days before we were born. Lord, lead us in your everlasting way and keep our eyes focused on you. Amen.